iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome to tonight's special event. Uh, we're really pleased to bring back our friends from IndieWire.com to bring you this IndieWire Presents event. Here to introduce tonight's special guest and talk a little bit about IndieWire is our guest moderator, Eugene Hernandez. Thank you, Frank. Thank you to our friends at Apple. Uh, IndieWire is a daily website about independent film, film festivals, filmmaking. Invite you to check it out, IndieWire.com. You can see the uh, site behind me. Um, without further ado, let me bring up our guest today, who's a filmmaker that uh, perhaps you've heard of from his recent success at the Sundance Film Festival. His new film, Sin Nombre, is opening or has opened in theaters, playing now. Please join me in welcoming the director, Kerry Joji Fukunaga. Hi, everybody. Okay, thank you for joining us. Um, the event today here at the Apple Store, Soho, is being brought to you via iTunes. So uh, some of you who are not here in the store may be listening to this uh, at a future date on iTunes. Uh, so we'll hope to provide some, uh, some good questions and answers for you. Um, in a moment, we're going to take a look at the trailer for the film for, the people who haven't, for those who haven't seen it. Uh, but perhaps, Carrie, you could just start by giving us a very brief description of the film before we see the trailer, just sort of set up what the movie's about, when you made it, and, um, and then we'll let people take a, get a little bit of a look at what the film is, looks like. Okay. Uh, Sin Nombre is a film about a kid in a street gang in southern Mexico who um, finds himself an accidental immigrant. He saves the life of a girl on top of a train, and... Uh, She's traveling from Honduras with her estranged family to get to the United States and crossing Mexico atop these freight trains. And his uh, chance encounter with her sort of changes the direction of his life. And then things happened. Things happen. Many things happen, definitely. Many things happen. <laughs> um, let's, just to give you a, a little bit of a look at what the film um, is about, in addition to Carrie's description, why don't we just take a look at the trailer? And later in the discussion, we'll also watch a scene from the film. Uh, but let's take a look at the trailer now, and then we'll talk about it. I should have just copied what that guy said. I think he did a better job <laughs> explaining the movie than I did. Yeah, he, uh, he described it very well. Um, the film is in theaters now. I invite you to check it out if you haven't already seen it. Um, if you have seen it, uh, We'll have, you can ask questions about the film shortly, and um, you can also ask questions of Carrie about his background in filmmaking and anything else you want to talk about in a little while. I have a few questions as well. Um, the film uh, debuted at Sundance a couple of months ago where it won uh, two big awards. It's, it's a really terrific movie, and it really blew me away at Sundance. Um, very happy for you, familiar with your previous work. Um, some folks may know a little bit or may have heard your name from your short films. Tell us a bit about uh, some of your previous work and, and sort of how you, how you made your way to become a feature director, mostly through short filmmaking. Yeah, I, I would say it's probably just from one short film in particular, um, a short film I did in 2005 called Victoria Paracino, which was based on a true event that took place in Victoria, Texas, where a trailer was abandoned uh, with a group of immigrants inside of it. And uh, I made that short film just as a sort of fictional version of what happened to try to put the audience inside the experience of being an immigrant. 
you know, inside of a trailer for about 10 minutes. And uh, that short film went on to win um, a series of awards, uh, including an award at Sundance and uh, a Student Academy Award. And it's because of that short film, actually, that I learned about Central Americans' journey across Mexico and about the trains and the, the gangs and the bandits and what that journey entailed. And um, after that first uh, Sundance with my short film, they asked if I had a feature script. And um, I um, told them I had a script, but I actually didn't have a script. And I quickly went home and put together uh, sort of a pale version of what be, would become Sin Nombre. And they, they didn't accept it to the lab the first round. They said, keep working on it. And then I went away for the summer and did real research and went down to the locations that are represented in the film, went down to Chiapas and also to the border between Texas and Mexico, um, into prisons with gangs. I traveled with immigrants on top of trains and sort of um, basically on that first trip saw everything that ended up uh, being put into this film. And uh, I wrote a new script and uh, that's what became Sin Nombre and that got into the Sundance Lab uh, in January. So one year after I was there with the short film, I was there with the feature script. And uh, the goal from the short film was just to make a film about something I thought was important and get people to see it. And um, I think a feature film, as a fiction especially, fictional film, has even more reach. So just kind of, I see the two as actually the same film in a way, even though they're different stories. What is it about the immigrant experience that was so important to you that you not only dealt with it in a short film but decided to make it the central aspect of your feature film? You know, if, if you had asked me six years ago if I was going to be making a feature film about immigration, I would, wouldn't have thought that's what, how I'd, I'd make my first film. Um, I was actually writing a film about diamonds in Sierra Leone. Um, and then Blood Diamond happened. Um, but uh, the the... The reason I made the feature film was because of the short film, and the reason I think um, it's it just movies take a long time. So in one way, yes, there was a lot of passion involved in it, but it was just like once you become so um, um, committed to something, you just at least I can't just turn my back to it. So I saw it through. Tell me about just from a pure career point of view um, for filmmakers who either are in the audience or those who might be listening on iTunes and hear you talk about making a short as a stepping stone towards making a feature, um, there are certainly many different paths that a filmmaker can take today, um, and it's certainly, there's certainly no easy way. Um, how strategic, I guess, were you in determining what path you were going to take and sort of figuring out how you would get to make that feature, or was that something that was even in your mind when you were making your short film? I'm very aware of the short film as the calling card to making a feature, but in this case, um, the reason I didn't have a feature script after Sundance when they asked me that first time was because I didn't make the short film to be my calling card film. I really made the short film because I wanted to tell that story, and then I figured I'd, I had these other scripts I was going to do for thesis short films still. Uh, I didn't think I would be making a feature film next, not at all. But um, I think, if anything, just, just the sort of the hustle aspect of being a, uh, uh, or trying or wanting to be a filmmaker is, you know, when those opportunities are presented, you just gotta bust your ass to, to take advantage of them, so. And yet you knew as a kid that you wanted to be a filmmaker or you were making films as a kid at home. What, can you remember, A, what first inspired you to want to make movies? Was it watching other movies? Um, what was it? And then, 
what were you doing as a kid to sort of learn how to do it? Definitely, like, um, I watched a lot of movies as a kid. Uh, in some ways, movie theaters were my babysitters. So I would spend probably, like, eight or ten hours in a theater finishing out all the movies that were there, you know, and I'd be sort of, like, if I was looking for something to do during the afternoon. Um, but uh, I, I think it was probably like in junior high that I actually started paying attention to how movies were made and trying to break them down. Um, and then in high school, I think the summer, I think the summer after my freshman year in high school, I worked all summer to buy a video camera and then I started making like little video shorts of my friends. But I mean, there, there was nothing out of that I would ever show anyone. <laughs> it was just like literally just little jokes and, and ideas my friends and I'd play, play around with, like the concept of story. I still hadn't really broken down what a story was or what a story was sort of made of. Um, so I, I, it was all just a slow process. And then I kind of forgot about filmmaking for a while when I was in college and I wanted to be a pro snowboarder instead. You wanted to be a what? A pro snowboarder. <laughs> Didn't really work out. I never went pro. I wanted to be. Where did you, where did you grow up? What's your background? Um, from the Bay Area, California, from the East Bay. And um, my, my family's mixed, pretty mixed through marriages and divorces, I think. Um, represent a bunch of different continents in the world. Um, I'm half Japanese and half Swedish, and then through marriage, like my, my dad's married to an Argentinian woman, and my mom married a, Mex a Chicano for a while. My little, so my little brother's like half Mexican, and my older brother's like half Italian, and we're all mixed up, so yeah. It's interesting at, um, to hear you talk about the film at Sundance, and, I, and the response was so positive. Um, one of the things that I think uh, surprised a lot of people about the involvement of Focus Features, which is a big specialty division of a major studio, uh, was the fact that you were able to and did tell the story in Spanish. Um, it's certainly, from a business point of view, um, it's certainly no easy task to release a film, a foreign language film, um, in this country, let alone by a first-time feature director. Uh, what were some of the challenges that you had to face in order to be able to tell the story the way you wanted to tell it? Uh, and maybe you could also talk about how uh, Diego and Gael got involved, when, how you sort of got the film to this studio. Uh, Focus became involved, like I said, in February after that first screenwriting lab. Um, I met with Amy Kaufman, who's here hiding in the audience somewhere in the back. And she used to work at Focus, she was a VP there. And uh, she went on to start her own uh, company with a deal with Focus as an independent producer. So she was looking for a project and I met her right after the labs. And um, she um, brought the script, because she liked the script, she brought the script to um, Focus and they were immediately interested in uh, understanding that it would be a Spanish language film. Um, interesting enough, the script was written in English first and it had like, a, just a little forward note explaining what the Spanish would be. and. Uh, and um, I met with Focus, and one of the initial conversations I had with John Lyons, who's president of production at Focus, was about casting and about how cast, casting can ruin a film um, or, or make a film that much stronger. And uh, in this case, talking about the story that I was writing, I said, you know, this film would need, be, you know, would need to have Central Americans in it. It would need to be, you know, obviously in Spanish, but also very faithful to regional dialects. And um, that was coming off of my, my research and having seen other films that were supposed to take place like in Central America, made in Mexico and made, used, using Mexican actors and Mexican accents when it was supposed to be like El Salvador, for example. And I didn't want to do that. 
Um, for me, it doesn't, can't, I, I just can't get in the story. It just, it just seems so fake to begin with. So I couldn't even imagine this story being in English ever. Um, Diego and Gael became involved because Kanana, uh, their company, also has a deal with uh, Focus. And we wanted to make this as much a Mexican production as possible. So Focus immediately put Amy with Gael and Diego and their company to make it a co-production. And I think that also helped to legitimize the project within Mexico as well and make it really feel like it was a Mexican production, even though I and Amy were technically gringos. I want to go back to something you said um, for those who uh, may have questions or sort of want to understand the importance of casting and the, and the effect it can have. You talked about the, the fact that casting can either hurt or tremendously help a film. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit? And what, from a filmmaker's point of view, not like only your own experience, that that you don't have badly. to do that. You don't have to do that. <laughs> but you can talk about it from a perspective of a director and also maybe as, as a bit of advice to other filmmakers, how they should... How and why casting is so important, it might seem obvious, but I think it's important to kind of elaborate on, on that key aspect of a production and, and how to sort of navigate it. There's probably, a, I think everyone, everyone has their own personal opinion about a cast, and I think the cast plays a big role in how people take in a story and believe a story or you know, uh, empathize with the story. So uh, for me, doesn't make it easier necessarily to work with like um, for example Edgar Flores who plays William Casper in this film he's the lead in the film has no acting experience so he's literally off the streets from Honduras so casting him doesn't make my job easier as a director but it makes his performance that much more real so then it does make my job easier in terms of selling his experience but then working with him to get that experience to be natural is the hard part um, with the other cast members uh, in terms of their level of experience, it was a lot of young people in the cast. So a lot of them are pretty new and, and um, in that way it's good because people don't recognize them. So sp suspension of disbelief happens much more quickly as well. But I, I think that just in terms of bad casting too, I mean, not that perfectly capable act actors can't turn a script into life for the viewer, but um, there's this weird chemistry that happens. Like I've seen films that have amazing casts in them, and I've seen these actors in different films, and for some reason, that ensemble, whatever the problem is, doesn't work together. It's just like ingredients in a soup. So um, sometimes, it, it, I think it's probably the biggest challenge when you're making a film. Once you've got past the part of writing the script, is who do you, who do you people it with? And following up on something you just said, the idea of working with uh, first-time actors, um, what are some bits of advice you might give other filmmakers, either folks who uh, maybe are just embarking on a project or those who might be imagining a project with folks who aren't, uh, who aren't professional actors, how to get that performance or how to work with an actor who isn't a trained actor? <laughs> um, I, I know other directors that torture their actors as well, make them sit on rocks and things like that to get a performance out of them. Break uh, them down. Break them down. <laughs> And then build them back up again, in your own image. Um, the what could I offer as advice? I don't know. I mean, this is, I think this is one of my first feature films, so I can only really comment on my last short and this one. But uh, I know that there was t moments where like I felt like I was torturing my actor, but there's also that the important part of like maintaining that bond and I guess you know not completely abusing your cast and crew, not completely, partially. Abusing, and um, I, 
it was interesting. I think this is uh, your my my. I discovered what my job was on set it wasn't so much um, directing the film because a lot of that sort of those conversations that happened in pre-production and, and through the casting, but was the problem solving on set. And uh, when you're working with a, a especially untrained actor, it's great to surround them with other actors that are much more trained and are much more professional and know the sort of protocols are being on set. So for example, Tenoch Huerta, who plays the guy covered in tattoos, um, used to be a, a football team captain. And he has that sort of like charisma of a leader. And I would use him to my advantage to like, you know, come on Tenoch, like, rally everyone, rally the, rally the guys, get them ready. And he kind of became like this sort of like, this sort of like a sergeant that would help me sort of like get like the, the gang actors together and get them ready to go. And, and in that way, he's also playing his role too as a leader. So it was just trying to take advantage of, of the people. Also to show Edgar, this is how a professional acts on set. This is the amount of uh, attention and professionalism and, and uh, how, the, how seriously they take the day all the way through the day all the way to the end. So. Um, it was it was interesting. I think it was a, it was a whole education. It was kind of like, for some people, I think it was like in, in Bowfinger when he gets like those illegal immigrants to work as crew, and like by the end they're using like crew lingo. Like that was Edgar. Like at the end of the shoot, he was like a complete professional. So. Obviously, you were surrounded by, or at the very least, you had producers who were very experienced and had certainly made many films before. Uh, tell me about some of the other folks you worked with as key collaborators in other departments. Um, how experienced were they? What were you taking from them? Um, what were the experiences of being a first-time feature director and working with other folks who either had or didn't have previous experience? Um, again, I'm sort of asking that from the perspective of other folks who might be embarking on a similar process. Uh, all the t departments were... Um, we used to have a lot of meetings and safety was a big thing, um, but I think uh, probably the departments I spent the most time with were and because I felt more comfortable hanging out with them was the camera and production design. But I would definitely spend time with all the different creative departments. Logistically, um, we had a very difficult shoot logistically. And uh, I think, unfortunately, one of the weakest links in the production was the, the direction, the, the AD, unfortunately. And that's a, that's a very difficult job to have a weak link in. Um, so it put a lot much more pressure on the cinematographer and I to figure out the correct plan for shooting the film. And um, uh, not that the AD was a bad AD, it just it was a, the weaker link, I think, in the whole production. And um, so he, with the cinematographer, with the production designer, with the various departments, were actually, in a way, having to put up that much more effort to communicate and be in touch because of that. And um, it was good, though, because it showed their passion for the project that they, they went the full length to, to make sure that our days were completed and that we had what we needed and that people, w without being told, were getting the next scenes or tomorrow's scenes or two days forward scenes and, and clothing and sets ready without having to be prompted. Um, but um, I think that uh, my, most of my time was spent like in huddles with the cinematographer and the gaffers and whatnot and trying to figure out how we we're gonna accomplish our days. Cause we had six weeks and two days to shoot the film. And uh, we were approximating like a 3000 mile journey. Most of it we were shooting around Mexico city. So there was a lot of like trickery that we were having to use to sell this idea as well. So I, I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit more about this journey because it, it, for those who've seen the film, it's a, it's an amazing journey. I can only imagine the experience of taking this journey to make a film about the journey um, must have been um, just as engaging and, and interesting. Um, 
tell me about the experience of the journey itself uh, and what it was like for you and perhaps it, if, it, if, if at all, if it was what you expected going into it. I mean, you're obviously right. You, you went in with a script for the film, which is a journey, but I'm sure that there were plenty of things that happened outside of the making of the film that were also influential upon you. Um, taking so this, are you referring to like me riding the trains or to yeah, the I mean, I guess journey of making the film? Sort of both. I mean, I think that I'm fascinated by the idea of you um, riding trains to put together this story and how that must have affected you and and um, affected the story and then embarking on the actual making of the film with this cast of you know mostly unknown actors um, untrained actors um, and then well, mo moving a production taking a production around Mexico City I don't know how well, I don't know how familiar you are with Mexico or yeah I'm pretty familiar with Mexico now at least um, I've, I, you start I've traveled there a lot even as a kid I traveled there a lot too but uh, to research the film, not only, I can't remember if I said this already, but, but I went down to Chiapas yeah, yeah. and, and I rode on the trains as part of it. Um, I ended up riding the trains three times. Uh, the first time across Chiapas, which uh, was the most informative, I think, in terms of uh, how I approached the train scenes in the film. Um, I rode with about 700 immigrants on top of a freight train. And there's no passenger cars on these trains. So this is just, you're riding on top. And... Um, uh, yeah. I spent two days and a night, sorry, two nights and a day on the train. The first night, our train was attacked, so um, some bandits assaulted the train and shot uh, a Guatemalan immigrant, then threw him off the train, and that was on the next car in front of me. But it was nighttime, so everyone started running off, and it was it was pretty chaotic. And then I rode a whole other day and night with the same group of immigrants. Um, so I was able to experience in that short period of time a lot of the stuff, the scenes that end up in the film and, and be able to write from a much more personal experience, uh, perspective. I don't think I could have written the film as I had wrote it um, uh, if I hadn't made that trip. The next time I rode the train, I hadn't planned to ride the train again, train again. I was just doing more more research after I'd already written a draft, but I was doing more research in Veracruz and I met a group of Guatemalans that I liked and so I, I decided to travel with them across Veracruz. And so I was with a friend who ended up doing the translation script and my girlfriend at the time, and I gave them my bags and said, I'll meet you in Orizaba. And they took the bus and I rode the trains with this, with this group. And um, each time I rode the train, I learned something more. And um, uh, I, don't, I don't think it was necessary, I think, the second time, but the first time was definitely necessary. Then going from then writing, writing the script to pushing it forward, I think... Um, one of the biggest journeys for me as a, just as a, as a creator was uh, how to inject the story and the, and the emotional experience into the characters I'd written and depart from a sort of a more journalistic story that I'd started off with. And um, a lot of that I worked out at the Sundance Labs. And uh, the, I had two writing labs and also a directing lab. And it comes down to like little things, but little things that affect how the drama story unfolds from details of the characters to the order in which things happen. Like... Unfortunately, we don't have the scene, but there's a scene in the tower, for example, uh, where w Willie and his girlfriend are having a nice moment. And before that, I had written where he runs into his gang beforehand, and then they go to the tower, and then the big deal is he's trying to keep his girlfriend's secret. And it, and it, when I was doing it at the directing lab, I realized that, you know, 
the tension from seeing the gang beforehand completely washed over the next scene and you didn't get any of the, the intimacy of, of them being together in the following scene. So in uh, one of my final drafts, I flipped the scenes, for example, so that you have the intimate moment and then you have a dangerous moment and neither one of them are lost or the emotions aren't lost in, in the effect. Um, and those are just little things that, little details that built up and that it gave me just more, I think, a, just be much more conscious, I think, of the dramatic effect of writing and then directing. Um, and, and, then, and then, you know, once Amy got involved and we were, we were developing the film and going through pre-production and really trying to get the script to a point where we could shoot it for the amount of money Focus was willing to give us because we didn't have a big budget um, and it was already a huge risk that they were willing to gamble on a uh, first-time director, a film in Spanish and with no cast that anyone could recognize. So uh, most people would, you know, they'd see that and they'd be like, you'd be crazy to ask you for a million dollars. So, um, and we had trains which aren't cheap and all kinds of other sort of logistical challenges to overcome. So that was a huge new learning process, trying to figure out how to manage your battles also. What battles were worth fighting, what weren't to get the film greenlit. And then through production, um, uh, production was it's a blur <laughs> to me now. I, I, all I remember about pr production was that I was running on adrenaline the entire time, and that there were two soccer teams, one in the camera department and one in the art department, and they had a long-going rivalry from back to the movie Apocalypto, and yeah, so um, that was our weekends. <laughs> a lot of stress was released on the weekends. It was a very difficult shoot. But in Mexico, you have this thing called the snack, or El Sapo, and it's at the end of the week, you as a director or producer provide the cast with tequila and beer, and if you don't do it, they'll mutiny, or at least that's what they told us. <laughs> and, um, and that's what we had every week to relieve the stress of what was a very difficult shooting day. It's a very difficult shoot. Everyone was working extremely hard, I think harder than they most oftentimes work on sort of bigger fat cat productions, but they're doing it because they really liked what they were doing, and, um, and they really brought a lot of themselves and and it was a very open and friendly set too so people come to me and they'd be like you know here's the scene where there is like a funeral scene i think they should be drinking coffee and i'm like great let's get some coffee for this scene and people felt very free to infuse their cultural perspective as well and uh, it was very open and 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 warm and, and communicative in that way and um post-production was the hardest for me because suddenly i was surrounded by all this hectic crazy craziness on the set and, and all the fun of being around what became a, a very tight family for those six weeks of production, seven weeks of production. Then suddenly I was by myself in post-production with just one editor in a, in a very cold town in, in, in Canada. And that was the hardest part, I think, not, not the production. Um, I want to give our audience a chance to ask some questions um, in about the 10 or 15 minutes that we have. And so I'm curious whether it'll be questions from those who've seen the film and may have questions about the movie itself or others from folks who may uh, be filmmakers and have questions for Carrie as a director. Um, I saw a hand. Okay. Um, I saw the film last week at a screening. And without giving too much away, did you always have the initial ending that is in the film? Yeah, the ending is the one of the few things that didn't change. The only thing that changed was the conversation that happened before it. Does anybody else have a question? There's a question in the third row. Can you just talk a little bit about the dynamics of working with the gang members? I'm assuming there are a lot of true gang members, MS-13, I guess, in the film. Can you talk about that dynamic and how that worked? Um, there was a few gang members in, in the film, uh, but we tried to limit that. I, I, we didn't want anything to happen on set based on filling it with a 
both gangs represented in the film are real gangs, and both of them exist in many of the places we were shooting. Um, my research process involved two years of research with them, and uh, and uh, you know down to the point where a, probably like a month and a half before shooting, um, we brought the script to them so that they could read the, their scenes and correct our Spanish to be their Spanish, uh, which is a very colorful kind of speaking. Um, so. Uh, they were heavily involved in the development process, but in, the, in their production, tried to limit it just because of the dangers. Um, up here in the front row. I was curious, when um, watching the film, how you actually shot on top of the train. I really was wondering if it was you really were on top of the train and then hearing that you rode on top of him. Because there's a scene where the actor ties himself down, and I'm looking at the scene going, how did they all not tie themselves <laughs> down? And where's the director, and where's the cameraman? So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, my producer has some interesting anecdotes about that, because we are very interested in safety. Obviously, we don't want anyone to get hurt on the film. and So one of the first things we decided uh, with the stunt department is that we would cable everyone down uh, so that no one would fall off. When I was riding on the real train, almost no one tied themselves down. I think only if you're so tired that you have no one to support you would you do that. Because if, if the Migra come and your belt's on and you can't get your belt off, you can't run away that fast. Migra being border, border patrol. Because even Mexico has its own kind of border patrol. Um, uh, I was one of the few people on set that didn't have a cable on because I would be running around a lot and I didn't use a walkie-talkie or anything like that. And um, sometimes I'd do it in flip-flops and I'd get in trouble. Uh, but I felt very comfortable because here we were on a set and I'd done the real trains and I guess there was a stupid arrogance inside of me that thought I, I was suddenly safe even though it was still a real train. <laughs> can, we, can we put... I want to... I wanna, if you don't mind, Amy, put you on the spot with the microphone because I, I would... Love to see what hear your. I was going to say for the record, I did not feel comfortable with that. <laughs> what, what, what did you do when the universal safety guy came around? <laughs> What's that over there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like there was days like when we were shooting the the, the water and the attack scene, for example. I, I mean, I didn't want to have all my clothes soaking wet because we had no way to dry them. So I was wearing board shorts and flip flops, and and you know, I was because I was hanging out in the, in the rain with the actors, and they had to wear their 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 wardrobe because you know they're in the film, but I could whatever I wanted. I thought flip flops were okay, but um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in terms of shooting it, we we did uh, the logistics were very practical. We had five to six days, but six days on a real train because that's all we could afford. Five of those days was on a, a part of the train line that really didn't look like a lot of the countryside I needed to show in the film. So for the other days when we I needed more greenery to show the more tropical side of of southern Mexico we built these sort of carcasses of trains at a correct height on flatbed trailers that we pulled around the semi-truck. Mm. Um, but one of the major problems with those is that finding a stretch of road that wasn't, that wasn't bumpy in Veracruz, that was thin enough but not you know, covered in potholes, and then the other part is you can't back up. So once you get to the end of the road, you gotta unhitch everything, get everyone off, bring it around, put everyone back on, rehitch, and then start shooting in a direction. And that takes two hours. So suddenly, two hours a day could be gone. Uh, you can't use your lunch break because even the people unhitching the, the trucks have to have lunch. So uh, logistically, what we ended up doing is just like shooting one direction all day long so that, and trying to avoid having to turn around to the point, so like we'd literally drive the truck for like five feet and then stop so that we wouldn't waste any road. And I specifically looked for a road that had branches at a height where it would hit us and like things like that. So just stuff like I'd seen on the, on the train, you know, branches was a big thing, so. Branches and wires. 
Um, and we didn't we didn't necessarily use the trailer just for more action sequences, even though we did do the rain scene there. But because um, um, we even the scene where, well, I'll give it away. I can't give it away. I can't tell. But anyway, we we did action scenes as well on the real train. So that's how we did it. And it was like there was no fancy stuff. I mean, we literally like we're handheld. So uh, the one time I, I tried using a jib arm, a little mini jib arm, it shook too much and the, it got in the way of wires on the real train. So we just had to lose it, and then everything was just handheld and as far out as we can get to, to get in people's faces, hang, hanging onto each other to get the shots, and usually just shooting up and down the axis of the train. When you were a kid, um, you said you, get, you used to spend a lot of time at the movies. Who were some of the filmmakers, or what were some of the movies? I'm always curious to hear like what, what movies were most inspiring to you as a, as a kid that made you, that made you become fascinated with movies. Um, I didn't know much about film history as a kid. In fact, not until I went to NYU did I learn more about the, the actual idea of film studies and classic films, silent films especially. Um, we had to watch, this is going to sound blasphemous, but we had to watch 50 films for NYU. And I didn't decide I was going to go until like the last month before school started. So for the silent films, I watched them in fast forward. Cause you didn't have to listen to it. You just read the titles. I know it's blasphemous, but I saw the, then the, the silent films I liked I actually went back and then watched them again in real speed. <laughs> um, but I, I, I did learn to appreciate classic cinema and, and uh, it definitely, I think that informs me now more than the films I watched when I was a kid. Cause yeah, I, I mean, you I, told me what some of those were. Yeah, I mean, it was just like popcorn films from the 80s, you know. I, um, I, I mean, they're great films still. I mean, like Goonies... So, I mean, <laughs> Tron. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to... There's one film that pops my mind every time. It's that Weird Al film. I remember, like, whenever I think about going to the Cineplex, I think about these movies, like these really bad movies. So I, don't, I definitely don't reference them. At least I hope I'm not referencing them as I make films now. But uh, I had some really great professors at NYU that, like, introduced me to stuff. And then I think living in Brooklyn, so close to BAM, and some of the retrospectives they have has been great. Because when I was in... in waiting for the green light, they had a Shoei Imamura retrospective at BAM that was amazing. And they had like 30 of his films there over a month and I watched like half of them while I was there. And his cinematography was like, it was like Scorsese, but like 30 years before it. And that was pretty awesome. And then also having a lot of great filmmaking friends has introduced me, not into their work, but also their people they really like. You went to film school, so I imagine you're gonna, you're gonna say good things about deciding to go to film school or making the decision to go to film school as a path towards filmmaking. I'm sure there are either filmmakers in the audience or those who might be listening on iTunes who might be trying to make a decision whether to go in the direction of film school today. What did you get out of film school in addition to seeing films you might never have? Um, silent films you didn't really watch anyway. But uh, I I'm just kind of... I just didn't hear them. You didn't hear them, that's right. <laughs> Uh, so I'm just kind of curious, you know, it, it's, it's a question for a lot of filmmakers or wannabe aspiring filmmakers now whether to go the film school route, go a different route. It's very expensive. It's very expensive. How, how would you sort of guide someone if they my, were to... My reason to go to film school is very practical. Um, I didn't have the money on my own to make short films. And so going to film school made, meant that I got access to student loans. And I got a lot of student loans. So uh, part of the hustle at film school was also trying to get grants and fellowships as I was going through film school. And I got lucky so that by the, my third year, I was being fully paid for and getting a stipend as well. But my first year, I had to basically pay for myself, and that's a big gamble. Um, I think my idea was that I'd try it out for a year, and, and then if they didn't give me more money, then I would drop out. But I would at least have that year to make a short film and a documentary. 
that's the first two projects they did when I was there. That was the curriculum. It's changed a bit now. But um, I think that uh, for me, it was the right choice. And I, I was very lucky to fall in with a great class as well. My particular year at, at NYU was a really great class. And um, um, the only I think the only drawbacks I actually going straight to a studio film was that I couldn't bring a lot of them with me to work on that film. But I still work with them as well. And I shoot films for my friends. And uh, some of my friends have had their films just premiere at South by Southwest this year, like uh, um, uh, Craig Johnson's film, uh, um, True Adolescence, which is at South by Southwest. He's in my class. And um, my other friend, uh, Mark Heyman, now works with Darren Aronofsky. And he got a co-producing credit on The Wrestler. So I happen to be a class that's doing pretty well so far. Um, so I wouldn't say it's for everyone, though. There's definitely people in the class I saw as well that were they weren't sure they wanted to make movies and were going to film school to decide if they wanted to make movies, and I think that's a mistake. I think you gotta know, you definitely wanna be making movies and, and know what kind of movies you wanna make and go into film school and make as many movies as you can while you're there and not, not treat it as a sort of like a time to meditate, but a time to like make as much stuff as possible. I mean, that's my personal opinion on it. How do you feel when you look at the movie now? I mean, do you, do you have you watched it a lot Recently, are you is it one of these? Are you one of these filmmakers who just can't? I I watched my movie about. I, I would say this is not an exaggeration. Probably close to two hundred times, and that's a lot, a lot of times to watch a movie. Maybe maybe more than that now. Um, I don't watch it anymore. I can't watch how, it. How how did your experience change when you watched it with an audience? Either early on in the process or ultimately at. A, I don't know if you watched it at Sundance. The first time I saw it with an audience was at Sundance at Eccles at the premiere. And then I watched it again this week in Mexico because I want to see it with the Mexican audience. Tell me about that experience. It was great. For uh, them as well. I want to hear what, how, how people reacted to it. And um, I didn't realize my movie was violent until I saw it with an audience. <laughs> I, because I'd written it and I'd directed it and I just sort of lost touch, I think, with the, the, the kind of impact it could have. But I would say the first half of the film, there were people like, you know, especially older people leaving the audience who I think they didn't know what movie they were going to see. And... Uh, were, I think was shocked because I think uh, almost like clockwork there's like four or five really violent things that happen towards the beginning of the film and I suddenly started getting really self-conscious about it because I didn't realize the film was so violent I wanted to almost get up and say if you could just last ten more minutes we're all good at least almost to the end <laughs> uh, but um, with the Mexican audience it was cool just because it was the first time also I got to watch the film without subtitles and just, just watch it and just feel it and listen to it and not have to be distracted by that because even though I know what they're saying I still get distracted by subtitles and um, it was great too, just to just to feel the audience and, and and how they took in the film and the experience, which is different. And they laughed at different places and, and responded differently to how audience did who were reading the film. Just watching the clips again, um, just reminds me to urge you to to really go see the film if you haven't. It's really really well done. It's a really terrific story. Um, it does have intense moments, but they set you up for, um, for some really incredible moments that follow. Um, I'm curious if there's any other questions from the audience here. Anybody else? Going. Going. I'm going to ask you about what you're working on next as a wrap-up, as we okay. wrap up here. Um, question in the second row. Uh, we do have a microphone for you. Just a moment. And if, you, if anybody has a follow-up, throw your hand up now, because we're going to wrap up very okay, soon. This, this is an amazing question, but it's very curious to me. Is um, Since you workshopped your film through Sundance, and you probably had chances to maybe tweak finer moments than others, when you got to actually filming, can you tell us maybe about a happy accident that was unforeseen 
something that occurred that with, after all your planning, uh-huh. a moment that actually came up that you couldn't have planned for that was one of the more precious or um, unexpected gems. Within the scenes that I'd workshopped or outside of that? Man. I mean, I think uh, the point uh, is that you spend so much time planning yeah. everything out and working towards a structure, and then these unexpected things happen that, I mean, it, you know, you, you, you touched on one now where you just changed what you're, what, you know, the, you changed the scene, um, the scene we just saw to... Yeah, now take I'm scanning through the entire film right now, <laughs> 10 times speed, um, trying to remember sort of happy... Act. There's always, like, little accents, you know, in terms of cinematography, like dogs and walking into the scene at the perfect time or a butterfly crossing the scene at the perfect time but I'm not sure if that counts as being you know those kind of moments uh, but you know what did happen is that because so much downtime happened between like traveling from location on the train to another location that we were sitting there with the camera and the actors and we could just shoot stuff and one scene for example I shot was a, a reaction of the girl's uncle and father after a certain critical scene that wasn't in the script and they were just there and I'm like oh well I might be able to use this, and it wasn't there, and and it only cost us about 500 feet of film, so let's just shoot it, and um, and we did, and actually ended up in the film, um, and I think it's an important moment in the film uh, that doesn't the film could have lived without it, but I think it just helps it that much more that it's there, um, and uh, <laughs> I was supposed to cut dialogue from the script that I kept. <laughs> So that when we're shooting certain scenes, I could just have them say it and just record it <laughs> while something else was happening. <laughs> um, but that, I mean, that wasn't a happy accent. That was just me <laughs> taking advantage. Um, yeah, there, I, there's probably more. I just, I'm just blanking right now. Um, I had a friend ask the guy, that, Steve McQueen, that about hunger, about like the 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 fly at the window. If there's any accidents, and Steve McQueen's like, well, in filmmaking. <laughs> We make movies. <laughs> accidents happen. Um, yeah, so yeah, accidents did happen. I want to come back to one quick thing because it stuck with me that you talked about how challenging or just draining, difficult the post-production process was. I think that's what you said. Uh, why? What was, what was the challenge of post-production for I think you? The, the challenge of post-production was suddenly like the, all the crazy hectic chaos that was around me was gone and like having to deal with like silence and then sitting with like hours and hours of material and then being sort of like forced with this this ticking clock to put it all together really quickly um, I think I was suddenly really ADD because I had been used to just so much stimulus just have to sit down and focus on one thing was very difficult for me so yeah I didn't have any access to Ritalin either so, so. Um, I think he had a question over there yeah, as there well yeah, real quick, um, you shot for six weeks. Can you give us an estimate of your budget that you have to work with? Ah, uh, the infamous budget question. I can't. But like I said, you know, first-time director in Spanish, no-name cast. You can imagine what the, the, the budget would be for something like that is, you know, limited risk. What are you up to now? Um, well, I'm writing a story right now. It's sort of a... An unrequited love story that's not based on me <laughs> and um, also thinking about doing a musical and talking to some bands I really like and, and seeing what we can do to try to make a musical where we actually like the music in the musical um, so it's not going to be Broadway at all and uh, 
then I have this like science fiction idea I'm kind of playing with. So, yeah, I don't know yet. <laughs> so you're, right now, you're, besides talking about the movie and getting the movie out there, you're writing primarily? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm writing one in particular right now, and then the other ones are kind of just like, every time I have a, an idea that applies to that one, I'll just add one more line of notes to that project's mm-hmm. word doc. Are you feeling a lot of pressure to deliver that next project, or how much pressure are you, are you or others putting on you to bring that next project out amidst getting you know this film out there and getting attention for it? Well, I'm pretty aware of that the idea that it's easier to make a film while people still remember who you are. So uh, not that you can't make one later, but um, there's a certain feeling of, of uh, urgency that puts pressure on me. But I also have two deals that I have to um, deliver for as well. So that's mainly what I'm, I'm kind of prepping for these pitches, one for Focus and one for Universal. So that's, that's what my work is right now. And I, although I'm allowed to do like bring in book adaptations, I'd prefer to do something original again. Last questions. I know we're out of time. Uh, the movie is in theaters now in New York City. Um, I don't San Francisco know the re- and L.A. too. Don't know the release plan well enough, but where? So San Francisco, L.A., New York. And then April 3rd, it opens up like in D.C., Boston, Chicago, sort of the other major cities in the United States. And uh, we'll be opening in, uh, in even more cities April 10th in some more suburbs and um, especially uh, more like Latino markets where more Spanish-speaking audiences. And then uh, May 1st in Mexico. April 3rd, it's also opening in Canada. Very good. Kerry, thank you for spending time with us today. Appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us Apple Store thank Soho. Thanks for being here. Thanks, guys. Always check out our website, apple.com slash Soho. We have a lot of great film-related events coming up very soon. Thanks, everybody, for coming, and have the best night ever. <laughs>